Good morning, everyone. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I remember going on a hiking trip a number of years ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago now, with my dad and my older brother, Matt. It was in the mountains of Northeast Georgia, near where we grew up, on what's called the Bartram Trail. Our plan was we would start in the late afternoon and hike in just a short distance, uh, just a couple miles to the top of Rabin Bald, which is the second highest mountain in the state of Georgia. So it was a short hike that evening, but a very steep one, straight up the mountain. And we would camp there that night on top of Rabin Bald, enjoy the views. There's a wooden observation tower up there where you can see for over 100 miles on a clear day. And then the next day we would hike south about nine miles along the Bartram Trail, kind of riding the ridges off of Rabin Bald to where we left another car down at War Woman Dell, which is near Clayton. Not that that means anything to you guys, but you guys can look it up on your map later and check, check me out. Um, and toward the end of the hike, we would come to another kind of prominent ridge where there were several other really beautiful, uh, spectacular views before we descended down to War Woman Dell. Well, we hiked up to Raven Bald, and we camped there the first night, and we enjoyed the view. And the next morning, we set off on our nine-mile hike to War Woman Dell. But sometime in late morning, coming on toward lunchtime, we realized that we had made a mistake in our calculations, and that what we thought was going to be a nine-mile hike out that day was actually going to be quite a bit farther. And I remember there was some disagreement about just how much farther it was going to be, <laughs> but something like six more miles than we had thought. Some real boneheaded planning, apparently, on this trip. So instead of finishing up in the early afternoon, as we planned, it was going to be getting on toward evening, or who knows how long it would take. So we had to make a decision. Should we keep going? Not sure how long it would take, but most of the rest of the day. And we would see the lovely views, which were the reason we'd planned our route that way in the first place. And we'd have the satisfaction of actually finishing the hike that we had planned. Or should we turn back? Back the way we had come, back along the ridge, up to Raven Bald, down the mountain to the truck we had left there the previous afternoon. It wouldn't be as exciting felt kind of like defeat in a way. There's always something discouraging about retracing your steps and going back the way you've already come. But we did know how far it was, and we knew that we could get back home more or less the same time we had originally planned. Well, I'm sorry to say, we turned back. We never made it to War Woman Dell that day. We never saw the views along the trail. The epistle to the Hebrews was written to Hebrews, Jewish Christians. 
Jewish people who had confessed Christ as Lord, as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and had numbered themselves among his followers. But now these Jewish Christians are feeling the tug of the old ways. They're finding this path difficult. They're not entirely sure where it's leading or how long it might take to get there. Maybe there's some disagreement among them. I don't, I don't know. It's getting hard. They're getting discouraged and they're having doubts. Maybe they should just turn back, go back the way they came. At least that's familiar. They, w- they won't see the views they've been promised, but they'll know where they're going. It's more comfortable, more predictable. Well, the whole epistle to the Hebrews, really, is an admonition to these Jewish Christians to press on, not to turn back, because what lies before them is so incomparably better than what they've left behind. In fact, the epistle to the Hebrews draws heavily on the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the people of Israel are at the edge of the promised land. They're just about to enter it and finally receive what has been promised to them. And they've already turned back once, remember? They were afraid to enter. And so God punished them and condemned them to 40 years of wandering in the desert until that generation had died off and a new generation was ready to enter the land and claim what God had given them. And the book of Deuteronomy contains Moses' admonition to them, reminding them of God's law, stirring them up to take courage and enter the promised land with confidence, remembering all that God had already done for them, remembering God's promises to their forefathers. The book of Hebrews mirrors Deuteronomy in this way. Like the people of Israel in Deuteronomy, these Jewish Christians had left their old way of bondage and were on the verge of entering into God's promised land. But also like the people of Israel, these Jewish Christians are tempted to turn back. They're wondering again, as they had wondered a number of times since they left Egypt, whether this new lifestyle of trusting God daily for his guidance and provision of hoping for a promised land that they have not yet seen or received, whether this is actually better than they had it before back in Egypt. So like Moses, the author of Hebrews is urging them not to turn back, to press on, to take courage. Earlier in the same chapter, chapter 12, we read, Therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. And way back in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. Our epistle today is really the great and stirring climax of the whole book of Hebrews. It's drawing together all the arguments that have gone before through the whole letter, setting forth one last great and stirring plea. And one last warning. Don't turn back. What's before you is so much greater than what you've left behind. The author of Hebrews sets up this last great plea as a contrast between two mountains. Mount Sinai, 
which stands for the Old Covenant under Moses' law, and Mount Zion, which stands for the New Covenant under the blood of Christ. If you want to stretch my opening illustration a little bit, you could say that it's a contrast between Rabin Bald, the mountain we had started on and left behind, and the mountains that were coming and the wonderful views that we had been promised. He's saying, don't go back to that old mountain. The mountains to come are so much better. He says in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. This is all describing Mount Sinai, when the people were camped at its foot, and the presence of God came down upon the mountain, and God himself spoke to the people, and his presence with all the smoke and thunder, the earthquake and the terrible voice, so frightened the people. You have not come to this mountain, it says. Instead, in verse 22, it says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There's a great theme of mountains throughout scripture. We don't often think of it this way, but the Garden of Eden itself was on a mountain. The prophet Ezekiel calls it the holy mountain of God in Ezekiel chapter 28. So the fall was not only a metaphorical fall from grace, but it is pictured for us as a literal descent down from a high place of communion with God onto the plains, banished from his presence. The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is humankind's attempt to build their own mountain on the plains. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. There's a kind of joke in that story when it says that God came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. They were trying to build a tower to reach to the heavens, but God had to come down to see it. The Tower of Babel was the people's misguided attempt to build for themselves what they had lost at Eden. And God frustrates their attempts by confusing their language, scattering them across the earth. There are lots of other mountains in Scripture that we could talk about. Uh, but let's focus on Mount Sinai, where God meets with his people and establishes his covenant with them. There God did indeed come down and made contact with his people to give them his law. And they were appropriately terrified at the presence of the holy God. Hebrews 12 makes this point very clear. The mountain was burning with fire, covered with a thick and dark cloud. God's holiness is indeed awful in the old sense, full of awe. The people were forbidden to go near the mountain. And the author of Hebrews quotes from the Exodus story, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Not a very welcoming place. Mount Sinai stands here for the old covenant with Moses, the mountain these Jewish Christians are tempted to go back to. And here's the thing. Sinai is not a bad place. <laughs> Sinai is not like the Tower of Babel. At Sinai, God did indeed meet with his people and make a covenant with them. He gave them his law, a great and wonderful gift. 
God's law teaches us what God is like. That he is a God of justice and mercy. And the law teaches us how to live just and merciful lives in God's world. The psalmist can't stop talking about how much he loves God's law. How I love your law, O Lord, he sings. All day long I meditate on it. And Jesus says in the gospel that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Until heaven and earth disappear, he says, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. God did indeed speak to his people at Sinai, and it was a good and true word, but it was also a terrifying word, a word of judgment. Look in Hebrews 12. The voice the people heard on Sinai was so terrible that they could not bear it. They begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. This is the law. It is good and right, but it reveals our own sinfulness to us in stark contrast to the terrible holiness of God. We stand before the mountain of Sinai condemned. God is there, yes, but his presence is inaccessible to us. Only Moses can go up the mountain. The rest of the people cannot approach it, nor do they want to. But now the writer of Hebrews is calling them on to another mountain. You have come to Mount Zion, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Notice in particular the contrast between the two voices. God has spoken from both mountains. At Sinai, the voice is terrifying. Hebrews compares that voice to the voice of Abel. Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, who was murdered by his brother Cain. In that story, God said that Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. Like the voice from Mount Sinai, the blood of Abel speaks a word of judgment for sin. It condemns like the law, and its condemnation is righteous and fair. Like Cain, we do stand guilty before the law. But in Hebrews 12, 22, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This has been a great theme in the whole epistle of Hebrews. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross fulfills all the sacrifices commanded by Moses' law and renders them all obsolete. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, has cleansed our consciences so that we may serve the living God. This is the word God speaks to us in Christ, in the new covenant, a better word than the old covenant, a word of salvation and peace, not of condemnation. Sinai was the mountain of law, of perfect and righteous judgment. Zion is the mountain of the good news of God, spoken in Jesus Christ. Sinai was a mountain of fear. Zion is a mountain of great joy. But this new word also comes with a warning. The Jewish Christians are hesitating. They're tempted to turn back and retrace their steps. So the writer of the Hebrews, writer of Hebrews issues them a stern warning. See to it that you do not refuse the one who speaks. 
The epistle of Hebrews contains several strong warnings like this, and they sound harsh to our ears. But as strict as they are, these warnings are God's grace to us. To go back to Mount Sinai would be to condemn ourselves under God's righteous judgment. It would be to refuse the gracious word of life that God offers to us in Christ. So as sharp as these warnings are, they are for our good. They're like warning signs along a hiking path that warn of a steep cliff nearby. They might be bright yellow with exclamation marks, but they are for our benefit. They're keeping us away from danger. If they did not escape when we refused him who warned them on earth, it says, verse 25, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? This new word of warning, it says, carries even more weight than the warnings from Sinai, the warnings to stay away from the mountain. That warning came from earth. This warning comes from heaven. Let's heed God's gracious warning and accept his word of life to us in Christ. One final point from Hebrews 12. The author of Hebrews punctuates this warning by describing it as a shaking. Verse 26, at that time, that's at Sinai. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Exodus tells us that God's revelation at Sinai did indeed cause an earthquake. It says that the whole mountain trembled violently. Well, Hebrews says that the new revelation of God in Christ has also shaken things up too. And not only the earth, but the heavens as well. This new shaking will be so great, so violent, that it says it will remove everything that can be shaken. Only what cannot be shaken will remain. If you were here last week, uh, you heard our visiting priest, Mother Sandy Richter, preach from Luke 12, where Jesus says that he has come to bring fire on the earth. Mother Sandy compared that fire that Jesus brings to the controlled burns out in Utah and elsewhere. Controlled fires to set to burn off the old growth, to clear away the fallen trees and the dead branches, to allow the nutrients and the sunlight to penetrate down to the earth and to make room for new growth to come up. Well, this fire that Jesus brings and this shaking that Hebrews describes are the same. The word of the gospel shakes the heavens and the earth so violently that everything that can be shaken will be removed. The word of the gospel is so powerful that it remakes everything. As Mother Sandy said, those fires are already burning. Our God, it says here in Hebrews 12, 29, is a consuming fire. We can already begin to feel that great shaking now. And scripture teaches us that it will only increase in the days to come. Only what cannot be shaken will remain. Well, it's a strong warning. If we turn back, if we refuse the gracious word spoken to us in the gospel, we too will be shaken away. 
Only those who are joined to Christ will receive, as verse 28 says, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. These warnings are for the Jewish Christians who first received this letter, yes, but they are also for us today. Just like these Christians long ago, we too are constantly tempted to turn back from Mount Zion, to retrace our steps back to Mount uh, Sinai. We want the security of the law. We want to think that if we do certain things, we can earn God's favor. We're very good at hiding it behind holy language. We're so good at it that we can fool even ourselves. We are always tempted to recast our faith as some human work. We make our Christian faith a function of our right belief or of our work for some good cause. Inclusion in the church means lobbying for the right causes, having the right politics, having the right opinions. But no. As good and important as those causes might be, making our salvation depend on them is the way of bondage and condemnation and not the freedom that Jesus brings. We serve God and our neighbor from the freedom that we have found in Jesus. We serve freely because he has made us free, not as a way to earn that freedom. And to return to Sinai in this way is to misunderstand, I think, Sinai itself. The law of Moses always points us toward Jesus Christ, as it was meant to do. It was never meant to save us. It was never meant to be the final destination. God's law is good, but it cannot save us. Only the blood of Jesus speaks a word of grace and peace. Only by believing that word can we be saved. Friends, isn't this why we're all here this morning? Isn't this why we come back again and again? We've come to the end of our own working and doing. We're aware of the many ways we have fallen short of God's perfect law. We do stand condemned at the foot of Mount Sinai, terrified before the voice of God's righteous judgment. But I have good news for you. You have not come to that mountain. This morning, here at Church of the Redeemer, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And here at this table, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. See to it that you do not refuse the one who speaks. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.